Uh, at the core of this series is the discussion of how the gospel informs and directs the way followers of Jesus, by followers of Jesus, and very specifically, engage and view relationships with other people. Now, <clears throat> I don't know about you, but much of my adolescence was spent daydreaming about the day I would meet the one. I was that kid. So I was that fifth grader who was going home and like telling my mom, like, oh, mom, Tiffany Baker is so cute. I like her so much. I was that kid. So I, I hate to admit it, but I was, that, I was that fifth grader that was like in love with this girl from Sunday school class. And, and I told all my friends, you, you probably know who that guy was, right? Like that, you know, that friend. I was, and I was, I swore I was going to marry her. Like I told my mom, I'm going to marry her. I'm going to marry Tiffany Baker. And maybe it was because I grew up with a mom who always watched black and white romance uh, movies. If you ever, anyone ever grow up like watching black and white film, like there was just like black and white film during that era when there was black and white film, the, the storylines were just always kind of written the same, wasn't it? It was like, you know, this, this, uh, there's this guy and then there's this woman who really didn't want him. And then she finally, she finally, you know, fell in love. And then there's always, there's this passionate, there's always storybook Hollywood ending. And my mom loved romance movies and she would just constantly play them and all the black and white ones. Or maybe it was because like most teenagers who have ever lived, there was a sense um, that, uh, that I, I, could, I could one day find true love, right? I mean, I don't know what it is about being a teenager, but um, if you didn't, if you weren't like me and you were a fifth grader and you weren't like really into like to relationships, something like happened. I don't know if it's because like all my friends started talking about it, but I always dreamed about finding the one. Okay, so this is just me. It's a little bit of a uh, uh, kind of a I guess a counseling session. I'm just letting you know. This was me. This was me. Maybe it wasn't you. And <clears throat> I had this overdeveloped value for things like romance and, and true love. And I, I don't know about you, but there was also, along with that, was because I was super passionate about it, I was also super judgy about it. Like, <laughs> I always looked at my parents, and I and I don't know if you said this when you were a teenager, and I think my teenagers probably think of it of me too, because that's just kind of what teenagers do. Like, like oh, my parents, like, oh, I could do it better, right? Like, you ever thought, like, you can do it better than your parents? Like, oh, my parents, they're just, if they only knew, like, if they could just, don't they see what they're doing? And I'm, when I, one day when I'm older, I'm going to do it better. You know, my wife and I, we're going to do it better. And, of course, that desire probably fueled my obsession with reading every book I could get my hands on on the topic of marriage. In fact, these are like all the books I collected between high school and just college. Like these are just some of the books that I would read on marriage. Like if you look at all these different books, you know, classic one, you know, if anyone, you know, if you're going to church, Elizabeth Elliot, right? You know, Quest for Love, if, you, if anyone, you know, the, I, I threw out I Kiss Dating Goodbye because that's a heretical book, but that was in there too, even though I hate to admit it. Um, so if any of you all know that book, don't ever read it. I don't even think they even sell it anymore. But anyways, I was obsessed. I was obsessed with this idea of falling in love. I was obsessed with this idea of being a great spouse, being a great husband, being a great father. But then something peculiar happened in my life. I got married, and then I went into ministry. And simultaneously, 
I was starting this new season of my life as a married person while engaging in full-time vocational and ministry. And there was a unique aspect that was happening at the same time because I was experiencing now all of the theories that I had built up in my mind about what it would mean to be married and finding love and, and seeing the hardships and the realities of that. But then also I was engaged in vocational ministry, which gave me the particular, I don't know, perspective that not all vocations allow you to have, which is coming alongside people in their marital experiences or in their experiences of pursuing romance. In fact, I remember one young couple who were living together that visited our church on Easter Sunday, and they were invited by a a couple in our church to come, and they weren't Christian. They came, and then they gave their life to Jesus on Easter Sunday, and I remember a few weeks later, they, they said, you know what, well, we want to follow Jesus, and you guys are talking about next steps. And so they filled out like a connect card, and, they, and then my job as, as one, uh, the associate pastor and staff was like, do a lot called the intake. So I, I, I met with everyone who filled out a connect card and wanted to get connected. And as I sat down with them, um, I realized that they, they weren't married, they were living together, and I had like this, but they, but they loved Jesus, they were on fire for him, and, 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 and we... And we began to navigate, like, like the books didn't cover this. <laughs> the books didn't cover, like, how do you, how do you deal with this? And, and they literally didn't have enough finances to really kind of move out with one another. And they were both from Maryland. And, and so, like, it was really messy, but we tried to work through it together. And, we did the, and I did the best to try to lead them into understanding how the gospel would inform the realities of how they were pursuing not only their relationship with, the, with each other to do it in a God-honoring way, but to also to continue to grow in their relationship with the Lord. I also remember young adults who were leaders in my youth ministry because I was a youth pastor in the early days. And, um, you know, youth ministry is usually made up uh, of a bunch of leaders who are, you know, single that, you know, maybe just graduated from, from college. And so we had, we had kind of these people that, who were our youth leaders in our youth ministry. And I just remember, I just remember um, uh, you know, them coming and they talking about, you know, like their, their relationship with romance. <laughs> I, remember, I remember this particularly as one gentleman, and, and he, he had an awesome story, by the way, when I first met him. He came into our youth group, which is what, kind of weird. He came through the doors of our church, came into the youth group, and he said, hey, I want to work with youth. And I'm like, awesome. Well, tell me a little bit about yourself, because I just got out of jail. And, um, and he, he'd literally just gotten out of jail, and, uh, but he had a passion for youth. And anyways, he hadn't become one of my, the greatest youth leaders, but he was so on fire for Jesus, um, everything was like super extreme. In fact, there was another youth leader that he was like in love with, and, and I remember having to come al- alongside him and tell him, I was like, you know, it's probably not a good idea because he was like, I- I've been praying about it, Phil, and I feel like Jesus, the Lord, you know where I'm going with this? The Lord what? Told me that what? I'm going to marry her. And, and he's like, I, I want to tell her. And I'm like, no. <clears throat> Not, not, a, not, a, not, a good, not a good idea. He's like, why? I was reading in scripture. And, and, and of course, you know, he, like every, because his mind's there, like everything like pointed to like, you should marry her. I don't know. He's like, I don't know. He was like reading some passage of scripture, like walk up on the hill and take that hill. And I don't know, like that was her. For, I don't know, like just weird stuff. And I'm like, no, you shouldn't do that. And and so, you know, being in ministry kind of gives you this weird perspective. Like, people think, like, oh, we can just talk to you about all this kind of stuff. I also remember the first couple I counseled. Um, goodness gracious, I was only probably 25 years old 
I hadn't even been married for a year. And uh, I remember the first couple I counseled that eventually got divorced and how devastated I was that I couldn't do anything to help them. Like, I just remember, I remember, one, feeling like I, I read all the books, but their situation was so unique that I couldn't figure out how to apply what I, I read to help them have a gospel-centered perspective on their marriage. And so, <clears throat> over the last 20 years of vocational ministry and almost 20 years of being married, <clears throat> I found that even followers of Christ, I found too far often that followers of Christ have taken their cues for what it means to pursue meaning in this life from something other than the Scripture. And today, I want to continue confronting this idea regarding relationships that we began talking about last week. And really, uh, this was kind of the main idea, that marriage is not the pinnacle of human relationships. Our relationship with God is. And even as I say that, like for you church people, you're like, okay, that's like this, that's a typical church answer, Phil. Like, like we expect you to say that. But what I want you to wrestle with is like, if that is the truth, how then shall we live? Because I think it would affect the way we think about our single life, our married life, our engaged life. And to do this, as we continue this series, I want us to turn to a passage of Scripture that I, I personally have never heard preached about specifically outside of a, maybe a verse-by-verse -verse study of the book of 1 Corinthians. That's where we're going to be. So if you go ahead and grab your Bibles and open up to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I don't remember ever hearing a message on this, not to say that there isn't, but the only instance that I've heard this verse talked about, these verses talked about are in the context of a verse-by-verse -verse study, and usually it's kind of glanced over. But in a moment, we're going to read through 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 25 to 35. I'm going to do my best to make it clear how the original audience of Paul understood what was said to them, and then I'll try to give some practical advice on how we can take the principles given to us in this passage and apply them to our everyday lives, answering the question, what's greater than true love? Like, what, what could be greater than true love? Now, before we begin our passage of Scripture today, let me give a little backstory on this passage of Scripture. After addressing some questions that they had sent to him, uh, Paul begins to answer these questions sent to him in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And while we don't have the exact wording of the original questions sent to Paul, the answers that Paul gives seem to address such things as marriage, singleness, even this idea of eating meat to idols, uh, the resurrection, and, and how the church gatherings should be conducted, including but not limited to things like the orderliness of the Lord's Supper, which we read today, and the exercising of spiritual gifts like should spiritual gifts exist in the regular gathering of the saints? And if so, what should that look like? And so 1 Corinthians is a really great book, especially as a person who grew up as a Pentecostal kid. Um, I, I found it really funny. I didn't study the book of Corinthians until I actually took a Corinthians class in Bible college. And 
I remember reading through 1 Corinthians, and, and if you didn't grow up Pentecostal, then it, this has no bearing for you, but I just, I, feel, I just feel better being able to talk about it, so just bear with me. <laughs> but it's like, I, I don't know what all the, uh, the Pentecostal people in my circles of influence read when they read the Bible, but it just didn't seem like they read 1 Corinthians chapter 13 through 15. Like, they kind of missed that, uh, especially as on the Sunday nights we were, like, doing Jericho marches around and, like, people were in the front row barking like dogs. I mean, it was, it was, there was some crazy stuff. I hate to admit it, but it did happen. I didn't do it, but it, it happened. So, and I just, I just wonder. But anyways, Paul writes about all these different things and all these, he gives these practical advice on kind of the regular gathering of the saints and they send them all these questions. And as Paul starts this advice, he's very careful to separate what he believes is a clear command from the Lord and what he believes is simply just wise counsel based on his experience and how he best interprets a gospel-centered person should approach life. Like if you have a hard understanding, time understanding what I'm saying. For example, in, in verse 6, he says this, I say this as a concession, not as a command. He gives some advice here in this passage of scripture, and he says, look, what I'm about to tell you, I give this to you with your, per- concession means like, with your permission. Like, with your permission, you should really listen to this. So like, you, I understand you could take it, you could leave it. I'm not commanding you to do it, because I could command you to do some stuff, and he does command them, but he says, like, hey, this is my concession. But then in verse 10, he says things like this, to the married, I give this command, not I, but what? The Lord. Okay, so it's very, if, if you miss out on this, this is where it can be really hard to understand what Paul's trying to say. And we have to be really careful to look at the language and understand that there are some things that Paul says where he's like, hey, I'm, I'm really sure the Lord teaches on this, and this is what you need to know. And he says that because he either has found something that Jesus has taught on, which we'll speak on, or it's something that has been taught in the Old Testament and has been passed down from generation to generation. But then he speaks on some stuff, and he gives some advice, and he says, look, it's not that the Lord says this, but you know, if you trust me, I feel like I have some wisdom on this, and I'd like to give you some advice on that. I have a pastor that I still call my pastor at my old church. His name is Rusberg, and he used to say, uh, he he'd used to uh, read a passage of scripture, and he would teach it, and then he would get to a part where he would like, give his advice, and he would say, okay, this is Berg, not by his last name was Berg, so Rusberg. He said, this is Berg, not Bible, and then he would kind of go into advice, but he would just kind of let you know, like, this is just me, this is my interpretation, and so this is kind of what Paul's doing here. In some points, he's going like, this is for a concession, I don't, I don't know that the Lord said this, but this is my best way to give you the advice. So, with that said, Paul makes it clear that there are things, listen, Paul makes it clear that there are things in this life that the scripture does not specifically address. And you need to be okay with that. Like, there are things specifically in your life that you can't go, the Bible says this chapter and verse. I know that there are some people who love the word of God and out of good intention say things like, the Bible has an answer to every aspect of life. And in principle, I would say, yeah. But in specificity, 
I'd have to go, no. I don't know what the Bible has to say about my screen time usage on my iPhone. I really don't know. Like, much is too much. I don't know. But there are principles we can find. And so, just because the Scripture doesn't specifically address an issue doesn't mean that there isn't a way that Scripture can help us view the various questions we have about life. And my hope is that this series is really kind of discussion of those ways that we can, in community, maybe have this conversation about what our relationships should be viewed as in light of the gospel. And so in our passage of Scripture, Paul demonstrates best when he writes this. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting at verse 25, it says this. Now, about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I do give an opinion as one who by the Lord's mercy is faithful. Now, pause there for a second. I know it's 2023. I understand that the idea that Paul would be talking to people who are unmarried by using the term virgin seems a little weird, seems a little outdated, but this was a common way to refer to people who were unmarried, virgins. As one Bible scholar writes, we must remember not to insert into the text the contemporary Western practice of young men and women choosing their own marriage partners. Like, I think we forget this, that for millennia, most marriage came into being not out of true romance, but out of arrangement. And so the vast majority of first marriages in the ancient world were arranged by parents, sometimes for daughters, as young as 12 years old. Okay, so that's the reality of how things happen back in the day. And so Paul seems to be entertaining questions about whether or not it would be best to get married. It seems as if though someone was writing to Paul and said, hey, we know we, we got some questions for you, and one of the questions we have is, is it, is it good for us to marry? Should we get married? We're, we're betrothed and our parents have arranged this marriage, but should we go ahead and get married? And Paul says that he does have some advice, but he doesn't have anything that he knows that Jesus specifically addresses in his earthly ministry, nor there is anything in the scripture that he can point to that he felt confident in saying, this is what the Lord commands. But what he does is he says this. He goes, he points to the legitimacy of his advice. He points to the fact that by the mercy of God, he has been able to live a single life and remain faithful to God because the advice he's about to give sounds like this. Verse 26, because of the present distress, I think it is good for a man to remain as he is. <laughs> Ask a uh, uh, hundred Bible scholars what Paul meant by the phrase present distress. Maybe that doesn't stick out to you, but I think it it should concern you like when you think about like, what do you mean by present distress? You can ask a hundred Bible scholars what Paul meant by, pre, uh, by present distress, and you'll probably get a hundred different nuanced interpretations. And I don't want to waste your time going into all the different interpretations, but regardless of what exactly what the present distress was that these Bible scholars believe, Paul points to the fact, what they all agree on, was that Paul's pointing to the fact that there was something that there was something about the reality of the life that they were living. There was something about the reality of the culture they were living in or something about the climate of what they were living in or the culture that they were living in that made it a wise choice to remain single. 
to remain single. So that's what he's pointing to. But then he also says this in verse 27. He goes, are you bound to a wife? Are you bound to a wife? And by the way, if you've ever heard the old phrase, ball and chain, old ball and chain, you ever heard that phrase, old ball and chain? Some of you are like, that seems so sexist. That seems so archaic. That seems so, well, <laughs> and well, that's probably the reason why people think the Bible's archaic. Well, this is where it kind of came from, because the literal word here in Greek about being bound to a wife means like being chained to, as if though you were chained to a ball here. So to bind or fasten with chains and to throw into chains, that's a literal Greek word. So anyways, that's your little nugget there. That's probably something that uh, your Greek teacher would say. It's just information. It's not really necessary, but I thought it would be funny nonetheless. Anyways, here we go. Verse 27, second part. It goes like this. He says, do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Okay, so what's going on here? It seems that Paul is going back into this thematic advice that he set back in verse 17 of this very chapter when he said this. Let each one live his life in the situation the Lord assigned when God called him. This is the command. This is what I command in all the churches. And so, also knowing that there would be some people who are ascribing to an unbiblical and extreme approach to spiritually, uh, to, to spirituality referred to as asceticism. It's a, I don't know if you know that word, you can Google it, but it basically it's this thought and belief that um, the, the pinnacle of spirituality is best demonstrated by denying yourself. Like the more you can deny yourself, I can fat, like the more you can deny yourself and not do something that your flesh wants, the holier you would be. And that would, uh, and, and he knew that there were these, these, these kind of people that are around and he, and he understood that Paul, would, some people would try to take Paul's advice and, and, and say to people, see, Paul says it's a sin to be married because marriage only exists to gratify sexual desires. So Paul writes this in verse 28. However, if you do get married, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But such people will have trouble in this life. And I'm trying to spare you. And just in case, I know some people like, you know, if we live in our Western world, we don't, we don't understand this very well. But those who are married, we get it. Like, I, I remember I've, I've been counseling this couple um, that have been considering getting married. And, um, and I remember telling them this principle that Paul teaches, that when you get married, there will be trouble. And I, I remember the, the young lady, she called me later. And she's like, I'm just really bothered by this, like, I'm really bothered that you said that when we get married, it's like, it's going to be troublesome. And then I even talk about this idea, like how James tells us that God uses tribulation to bring holiness into our life. And so the main purpose of a spouse is actually, and, and one of the main functions of a spouse is actually be, to be tribulation in your life to spur you on towards godliness. And they just had an issue with that. They're like, no, 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 no. My spouse is supposed to be perfect. They're not supposed to be trouble for me. They're not supposed to be a source of contention. It, and that's coming from the world. My spouse is supposed to help me. That's why they're a helpmate. You know, they make me complete. Like, and, and I had to lovingly tell them, I was like, well, I don't know what married couples you talk to, but the married couples I know understand. The happily married ones are the ones who are moving towards godliness. Understand, like, God uses your spouse, and sometimes 
they become the hardest source of trial to make you more like Christ, that there are troubles. But just in case you don't jive with that explanation of troubles, Paul actually goes and he explains and he expounds on what does it mean that married people will have trouble in this life. He says this in verse 29 to 31. He goes, this is what I mean, brothers and sisters. And we'll take it from Paul if he didn't like what I said. The time is limited. So from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. Ooh, wait a minute. This is weird. Let's keep reading on. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they didn't own anything. And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For this world in its current form is passing away. Okay, what do we do with this? What do we do with this? One Bible scholar writes this. He says, Paul presents five situations in which we should reflect different priorities from those who are not believers in Jesus. This is what he is supposing. We have people who are married, people who are weeping, people who are buying things, who own stuff, people who use the world, and, and, and all that kind of stuff. And so these are, these are all the different reasons. And ultimately, he instructs that we should not allow the things of this earth to have any ultimate importance in our lives. This is what Paul was getting at. If I could summarize it. This course makes sense of why Paul says what he says next. What we, when we read that, one thing leads to another, and this is why Paul says what he says in verse 32. I want you to be without concerns. The unmarried man is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But the married man is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. The unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, so she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But the married woman is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to put a restraint on you, but to promote what is proper so that you may be devoted, so that you may be devoted to the Lord without distraction. Okay, <clears throat> so... We read this passage of Scripture that I wanted to read to you because I, I just don't think it gets talked about a lot and I don't know if we, we, we point to this passage of Scripture, especially in the terms of when it comes to relationships and understanding singleness and marriage life. So the question is, how does what we just read give insight into this concept that marriage or, or true love is not the pinnacle of human relationships but that our relationship with God is? Well, uh, here's the bottom line, just in case if I have to rush the end and I don't make it really clear. Here's the bottom line. Living out the mission of God matters more than our relationship status. Like, that's just the bottom line. Like, your relationship status, the status of your relationship. What's more important is living out the mission of God than the status of your relationship. And let me be clear. I'm not saying that the mission of God gives permission to the ignore permission to ignore the realities and responsibilities of our current relationship status. Like, don't, don't take me the wrong way. Like, if you're married, you need to be faithful in your marital responsibilities. If you're single, you need to be faithful in the responsibilities of what your singleness means. But the, for the follower of Christ, living out the mission of God in their life will not impede in living out faithfulness to whatever relationship reality you are in. So, yes, you may be married, which means that the attention of your life will be distributed among the need to serve God and serve your spouse. This is what Paul was talking about. Like, the reality is when you're married, 
you're going to have, you have 100% of your life and you only have 100%. And so some of that gets given to the Lord and the attention of the things of the Lord. And then some of that, it gets divided to the attention of the things of this world. And by the way, uh, and I'll talk about this in a little bit, but when, he's, when he uses the phrase like the things of this world, and he says, serving your spouse and your wife, this is a reality that we all understood that Jesus taught himself in, 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 uh, in, in, in Luke chapter 20, when he reminds the Pharisees that, you know, they, they, were, asking, they were asking questions about marriage and, and how, how it would pertain not only to this life, but in the afterlife in heaven. And, and Jesus kind of had to correct them and go like, guy, don't you know, don't you remember that marriage in heaven is not even a thing? Like there's not going to be any, like marriage in heaven is not even going to be necessary. And I think for some people, especially people who like believe like, you know, all dogs go to heaven. The idea that even like your spouse is not going to be your spouse in heaven, like just seems like, oh, so wrong. Like, isn't it for better, for worse? And like forever into eternity. Like, no, actually, if you read your Bible, that's not how it really goes. And so what is Paul alluding to? Well, like the, your, your marital relationships, that's something that will be left here on this world. That's something that will not be taken with you into heaven. And so it's not a negative thing, but he's just saying, like, let's just put it in its real place. Like, this is something that exists in this world. And so you're going to have to put your attention on that, right? Like, you're not going to go to heaven and, 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 you know, like, you know, going up to someone and be like, hey, so uh, what were you on earth? I was a doctor. What were you? Well, I was a lawyer, you know? Like, your, your occupation won't have anything to do, you know, your, 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 uh, you know, did you graduate summa cum laude? Did you, oh, well, I was valedictorian in my class. Like, that, none of that matters. That's here. But, but those are things you should do, right? You should be faithful. And so, you may be married and you need to distribute the attention to God and your spouse, but you still, listen, you still have a mission if you're married, you still have a mission. And though it may include the role as husband or wife or father or mother, your ultimate role is to be concerned about the things of the Lord. I'm talking to believers in Christ here, obviously. But do you understand that? Like our ultimate mission is to be concerned of the things of the Lord. And yes, you may be single, or maybe you're in a relationship that you're hoping it one day turns into something more. Or maybe you're hoping for a relationship that would develop into something more. But your life is not measured by whether or not you accomplish finding a mate. Like, I don't know if you know this, but the value of your life, no matter how much maybe your heart pulls toward it, is not measured in whether or not you find a mate. It's not even measured in how you go about doing that, which, by the way, young people, I, goodness gracious, when I see, like, dating patterns and everything, like, and how people date nowadays, like, I feel for you. Like, I long for the old-fashioned days, like, and I'm so glad I'm married. I don't know how you do it, but it's like, sometimes you can feel even guilty about the process of, like, how you got like the process of dating and like how that goes and Gen Zers, they don't even talk anymore. Like you just text, you, you say, I don't, even, I don't even get it. I don't even get it. Like us Gen Xers, we joke about writing on pieces of paper. You know, do you like me? Circle, what? Yes or no, right? No. Would you like to go out with me? Circle, yes or no. That was the extent of our text messaging, but eventually we would like have conversations. So I don't even know how you do it now, but, but you know, it's, it's just, it's crazy, right? And, and you, can, you can take, 
You can find identity in how well or not how or, or how not well you go about dating and pursuing romantic relationship, but your life's ultimate role is not about that. It's about being concerned to the things of the Lord. I don't know if I can say that more enough. Tim Keller, uh, pastor and theologian, I talk about him a lot. I don't know if some of you know this or even care, but um, he passed away this week after a long battle with pancreatic cancer. And um, someone who has been a mentor, at least to me from afar, in fact, his, <clears throat> his talk on why plant churches was the reason why we even exist today. But him and his wife wrote a book on marriage entitled um, The Meaning of Marriage, Facing the Complexities of Commitment with the Wisdom of God. And him and his wife, they write this. I, I just think it's helpful. He says this concerning this passage of Scripture. He goes, Paul says it means that both being married and not being married are good conditions to be in. They're good. Like, both are good. Both are good. We should be neither overly elated by getting married nor overly disappointed by not being so. Because Christ is the only spouse that can truly fulfill us. And God's family, the only family that will truly embrace and satisfy us. And as I said, this is of course something that Jesus taught. Like I said, Luke 20, Jesus reminds the Pharisees who are asking for advice regarding marriage from an earthly perspective that there will be no need for marriage in heaven. And then in Matthew 12, Jesus makes it clear that, the, that only fellowship with God's family is the family that fills our heart's desire for the kind of family that would satisfy us. And I know that seems offensive, especially, and, and I, actually, I actually love what this new generation of parents, their, their, their passion for the family, I, I think they get it. They saw a previous generation of people who, parents who maybe chased after dreams and they didn't, they didn't, you know, but, but there's always this pull into extremes. And I see a new generation of young people who have made their family their mission. And, you know, they listen to those little quotes on Instagram, you know, like guys like Jordan Peterson saying like, oh, your kid's only four once. And once it's gone, it's gone. And, and then, you know, of course, all us older people are starting to feel like we're crying. We're feeling guilty. Like, oh, we missed it. Where was Jordan Peterson when I was 20? Uh, you know, and, and, but there's this pull to make your family your mission. And I wonder if, I wonder if the evil one has used this new sense of, like, family unit and pursuing, like, this perfection of family unit to replace what only being in the family of Christ was meant to fulfill. I wonder, and I wonder 10, 20 years from now, as you young parents move into a new season of your life, you won't find that you sacrificed what God wanted for you in pursuit of what you thought was best for you by putting your own family over connecting with an actual spiritual family that Jesus Christ died for so that you could be a part of. Just something to think about. So then, what is a greater and more noble thing to live for than true love? Well, 
living life for God's mission. And how can you figure that out for your life? And this is where I'm going to go into Santillan, not scripture. So I got a couple. Okay, that's my little thing. So this is, this is just a little bit of, a little advice. This is my advice. You could take it. You can leave it. You could even send me an email, and I'll receive it, and I'll have coffee. You'll be like, I don't agree with you. We could talk about it. But I'd, I'd hate to go away today without giving some advice about how we can figure out what it means to accomplish God's mission in our life. And as I say this, some of you are going to be disappointed because it actually is some things that I always say, but my message doesn't change. How can you figure out the mission for your life? How can you live out God's mission in your life? Well, first start with what is clear about what's the most important to God. And how do you do that? Like, how do you find out what's most important to God? Someone tell me. What? Read what? Read the Bible. Read the Bible. And, and, and this is, I know it seems like the very Christian answer, but let me ask you a question, um, a, a set of questions. You know, do you want to live out God's best for your life? If the answer is yes, then let me ask you another question. When was the last time you spent looking at the very place where God makes it evident his mission exists? scripture. Like, like, when was the last time you read the scripture to find this out? And I'm not talking about the weird, like, mission stuff, like, I don't know if I should take this new job or not, and so I'm going to look at the Bible and see what God tells me. Oh, no, he says, I want you to be where you're planted, blah, blah, blah. Oh, that means I got to stay. Oh no, I just read about Abraham going to the land. Yes, God wants me to go and I'm going to move. Okay, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like the, like the stuff where Jesus says, a new command I give you, that you would love one another as I have loved you. Does anyone, is anyone unclear what that means? How about this command? Jesus answers a question, what's the most important commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And by the way, the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Is that command unclear, anybody? Like, is that unclear? And couldn't we spend the rest of our lives just trying to figure how to make that a reality in our lives? Like, if you were honest with yourself? And then, and then there's this thing that Jesus tells his disciples that actually has been told to every disciple who, is, who becomes a disciple who, as, as, their, as their calling card for life, as their life mission. In fact, we call it the Great Commission where Jesus says what? Go and what? Make disciples of every nation. Like, is that clear? Is that unclear to you? Like, what does that mean? Like, what is he? Well, Jesus didn't really mean to go. I mean, he meant, he meant to say, some people you go. <laughs> no, he meant everyone go. And when he said make disciples, he really wasn't meaning like make, like talk about God. And, and like, he really meant some people make disciples. And I'll be a person that gives to the church or, or you know, I'll make disciples of my kids. And, you know, I'm passed it off as just, making disciples. Or, you know, my, my wife and I, we're going to really just make disciples of one another. Is, there, is it unclear? Again, this is nothing new. What is it clear in God's word for you to live out? 
And you're not going to know that unless you read it. Are you reading it? And so you start, if I could think about the concentric circles of how to figure out living out God's will in your life, you start with figuring out, like, what does Scripture say? Like, you start there, that's your, this is, this is the, the big circle. Now, if you want to narrow it down, you want to figure out what's next. This is the hard one. This is the hard one because we live very d- discontent lives. The second one is to do this, and, and it's what Paul was talking about in verse 7, 7, uh, in seven here in, in 1 Corinthians, or 17, or is it 7? Seven? 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 17. And it's this idea, living out the mission of God uh, um, means thriving where God has planted you. Like, what is the reality of your life that you're in? Like right now. And, and how are you leaning into making the most of where you're at? Uh, we can have an argument about like, oh, well, I don't think this is God's best for me right now, and I think God has other plans for me. Okay, that's great. God has some other plans for you in the future, but today you are here. You're a parent, and as much as you'd like to pass off your kids to somebody else, they're yours. <laughs> so you got, you're a parent. How do you live out God's mission as a parent? You have responsibility. You're a student. You're in high school. You're in college. As much as you'd like to be done, you maybe like to drop out. Maybe become an entrepreneur. Download some Gary V podcasts, you know, and start hustling garage sales. And I don't know, <laughs> like, just be done with school. You don't need school. If you're in school, but, but okay, you want to quit. But what are you doing right now? You're in school. You're in school. So guess what? Accomplish the mission of God with that responsibility. Whatever situation you're in, don't make the mistake of mistaking the way in which God is accomplishing his mission in the world through you as the actual mission. Let me just say this again. Do not mistake the way in which God is accomplishing his mission in the world through you as the actual mission mission. It's not the mission. Don't elevate being a parent, being a spouse, having a successful career, getting into that university you've been wanting to. Don't elevate the way God accomplishes his mission in the world through you to the same place of God's desire to have you accomplish his great commandments and his great commission in the world. Thriving where God has planted you is also recognizing, like, what do you actually have? Like, what are your gifts? Like, for real gifts. Not the, not the gift that your mama always told you you were good at, but if you tried out for American Idol, you know, you would be sorely disappointed that your mama was wrong. I'm talking about your real gifts, your real talents and abilities, the resources you have already in your possession, How are you applying them towards accomplishing God's great commandments and being involved in the building of his kingdom and accomplishment of his mission of making disciples in the world? Like, what opportunities are open to you? Like, do you see needs and do you fill needs? Or or are you too busy saying, someone will take care of that? Like, do you see needs and then do you fill needs? 
Or are you too busy saying, well, that's really not my thing? But you're here, right? You're here, right? Fill a need. If you see a need, fill a need. Don't get stuck waiting for the right thing. The reason why true love is not the greatest thing in the world to live for is because living out the mission of God matters more. So what if we believe that? How would that change the way we view our relationship status? How would that cause you to repurpose your rhythms for God so that God could have more effectively and actively accomplished his mission in the world through you? Because whether you know this or not, your spouse, your love doesn't complete you. Only God does.